We just have a little time left, and I don't uh, want to take a lot of time, but I want to kind of wrap up what we've been talking about for the last couple of Mondays about this whole matter of spiritual warfare. Uh, we have talked about some of the strategy that Satan uses. We've talked about the participants in spiritual warfare. We've talked about the way that Satan attacks us, how he comes at us. And I want to just share with you briefly this morning how we are to deal with the attacks of Satan. How do we respond? You know, there are a lot of answers being given today. There are those people uh, who tell us that we need to uh, have some formulas. I remember reading a book. Uh, I think the title of it was Your Adversary. It was written by a man named Bubeck. And in every chapter, he described certain demons and what they do. And at the end of each chapter, he gave a formula prayer. And he said, if you pray this formula prayer, those demons will run away. Uh, recently, a friend of mine had a seminar at his church, and in that seminar, a group of people came in and told folks how to get rid of the devil and how to get rid of demons. There are certain little things you say to the devil, or certain things you say to demons, and, uh, and they run away. Uh, we are told today a lot of times that we need to bind Satan, and you hear people walking around saying, I bind Satan. I heard somebody say they bought a new house, and they went into the new house. first thing they did was, was they bound Satan and said, Satan, you can't come in this living room. Satan, you can't come in this den. Satan, you can't come in this kitchen. Satan, you can't come in bedroom one, bedroom two, bedroom three. Satan, we don't even want you in the garage. They went through the whole house and bound Satan, which means never again could Satan ever get in any of those places, I suppose. At least that's what they think it means. There are people who talk to Satan. I've seen preachers on television running around platforms like this, stamping their feet, saying, I'm stepping on your neck, Satan. Take that, Satan, while the congregation hoops and hollers and screams and yells and uh, launches off into ecstatic speech or whatever. Um, now, we've all seen, we've all seen or experienced some of that kind of stuff. Now, how are we to deal with Satan is the question. Do we command demons? Do we talk to Satan? Do we accuse Satan? What do we do? We used as our basic text Revelation 12, and we saw in Revelation 12 a little bit about the spiritual warfare. We saw identified Michael the super angel. It might be good for us to just keep in mind that the Michael himself uh, didn't even engage in combat with the devil. In Jude 9, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, arguing about the body of Moses, didn't dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Even Michael, the super angel, the most powerful of all the angels, did not himself bring some kind of accusation against Satan. He literally turned him over to the Lord. It is a tragic and rather uh, inept conclusion for any Christian to come to that he can command Satan. You have no indication in Scripture that you can command Satan or frankly that you can command demons. You say, well, what about Jesus? He commanded Satan, right. What about Jesus? He cast out demons, right. But he is the Son of God. Well, you say the apostles also cast out demons, right, because they had a delegated authority given to them as a sign of their apostleship. But there's no reason to assume that that is a continuing authority that believers have. We can deal with Satan, and we can deal with demons, but we do not deal with them by commanding them, by accusing them, or by doing what is called binding, which uh, is not something that is even given us to do in Scripture. No formulas, no exorcisms, no commanding demons, no commanding Satan, no bindings. How do we deal with Satan then? 
If we can't bind him, and it's ludicrous to think you could, and we can't bind his demons and make them sort of tie themselves up in a corner because we told them to, how do we deal with them? How are we to wrestle in this spiritual combat? Well, let's look at a few scriptures, and I'm just going to kind of plant them in your mind. You can go back to them on your own and draw out with some discernment the things that are there. But I want to give you some basic insight into how you deal with Satan. Let's go to first, first of all, to James chapter 4. And what I'm trying to do is pull together what the New Testament says about this so that you can draw some pretty clear conclusions. In James chapter 4 and verse 7, you have a very simple and direct statement. It says in the middle of the verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is not a question of you commanding Satan. It is a question of you resisting Satan. Resist the devil. In other words, don't fall prey to his approach, which is always the same way. He comes through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. The lust of the eyes means I see it, I want it. The lust of the flesh means I feel it, I want it. And then there is pride. He comes only in those three ways. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Something very attractive that you see, you covet, you want, and you do things to get that. That's why people cheat. That's why they lie. That's why they steal, because they want something. They see something, they want it. They want money. They want to gain some possession. Then there is the lust of the flesh, which obviously are the passions of the life that drive and compel us. Satan appeals to those passions through the world system. And then there's the pride of life. He appeals to our fallenness, our pride, wanting us to do things that feed our fallen ego. Those are the three ways in which he comes to us. Gain some possession, fulfill some drive, gain some personal satisfaction through the exaltation of yourself. That's pride. He always comes the same way. So we are to resist him. We resist him at the point of the lust of the eyes, seeing and wanting. We resist him at the point of the lust of the flesh, feeling and wanting. We resist him at the point of pride. Now, how do we do that? If we do it, he'll flee. You don't have to cast him out. You don't have to bind him. You don't have to send him anywhere. And by the way, if that's true of Satan, that's true of any of his emissaries and demons. So how do we do that? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And I was sharing this with our congregation at church last night. It just so happens that these things overlap. I hadn't intended it to be that way, but that's the way the Lord has directed it. He says, uh, be uh, uh, of sober mind or of sober spirit. That means get your priorities right. Get in spiritual balance. Make sure that your life is balanced spiritually. The word sober or sober-minded means that. It means not to be influenced by the intoxicating allurements of the world. It's used metaphorically rather than literally. He's not talking about alcoholism here. He's talking about making sure that you don't become intoxicated with the world's system that would allure you and mess up your priorities. So be self-controlled is the best translation. Get yourself under control. Then he says, be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to chew you up. He wants to devour you. Now, what are you going to do? Verse 9. Same thing as James said. Exactly. Resist him. Resist him. How do you resist him? 
we, we already heard we're supposed to resist him from James 4. And here we hear an echo of it. Resist him and he will flee, James said. How do you resist him? Follow this. Firm in faith. Firm in faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that you, you resist him by being firm in faith two ways. In your trust in God, that's a subjective faith, and in the faith, the objective faith. Now, what do I mean by this? The way you resist Satan is by, on the one hand, having a strong trust in God. On the other hand, having a strong understanding of the word of God. How did Jesus Christ deal with the blows of Satan? Let's start with the word first. How did Jesus deal with Satan's temptation? Satan came to Jesus and tempted him three times. And all three times in Jesus' temptation, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Jesus answered with what? Scripture. Scripture. He quoted out of Deuteronomy. And so he resisted Satan using what? The word of God. He was firm in the faith. The faith being the content of revealed truth. And by the way, there is no way to tell in the Greek text of this verse whether he means a subjective faith or the objective faith. And so we will encompass both of them. We have to be strong in the word. That's the first thing. The way you deal with Satan's temptations is through the word of God. Let me take that for you a step further. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. This is another very important scripture in this matter of understanding our resources and spiritual warfare. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. The word little children... The word little children here is the word offspring. It means children in a, in a very broad sense. At any age of life, we are all somebody's children. It's used in that very broad sense. So we are all children of God. Our sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ. We're all children. Now in verses 13 and 14, he divides children into three categories. I'm writing to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. The highest level of spiritual life is to be a spiritual father and spiritual fathers know the eternal God that's what he means you have known him who has been from the beginning you have had and are now experiencing a deep knowledge of God that is spiritual maturity a spiritual father is the most mature believer he not only knows the Bible, but he knows the God who wrote it. He is behind the page and has a deep and ongoing knowledge of the God who is the author of Scripture. Then he says, I'm writing to you young men. There's a second level down of spiritual growth. Young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. What a statement. You have already overcome the wicked one. You have resisted the devil and he has fled. And he says, thirdly, I've written to you children, and here he uses the word for little babies, because you know the Father. Now, three categories of spiritual growth follow this. There are babies, young men, and fathers. Babies, they know the Father, Dada. That's sort of spiritual goo-goo, you know. I mean, they know the Father, that's all they know, they don't know much else. They know God is their Father, and that's basic knowledge. Then the spiritual fathers are the ones who have known God in a deep way. Who are the spiritual young men, though? They're the ones who have overcome the evil one. How? 
How could you get to the place in your midpoint of spiritual growth where you overcome the evil one? I'll show you. Look at verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now listen, here it comes. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what is it going to take to overcome the evil one? If you're going to resist the devil, you have to be what? Strong. You have to be very strong to, to resist the devil. You have to be very strong to overcome the evil one. And what gives you that strength? You are strong and the word of God, what? Abides in you. Spiritual strength to resist the devil is directly correlated to the indwelling, dominating power of the word of God. You are strong in the faith. You know the Word of God. So that when a temptation comes, immediately, your involuntary responses are biblical because you're dominated by the Word of God. You can't get into a temptation very far before you start hearing the echo of a lot of Bible verses in your own mind. You have allowed the Word of God to dwell in you richly, Ephesians, uh, Colossians says, Colossians 3 and the Word of God dwelling in you ritually dominates your responses. So when the devil comes, you resist him strong in the Word. Isn't that amazing that you can come to the point just in the midway in the three-step development of spiritual life where you literally have overcome the wicked one? Say, how can that be? Because when you know the truth of God, you have the right defense. Jesus answered Satan all three times by quoting Scripture. Let me just support this a little further. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now in verse 10, we hear this statement, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Of course, again, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Paul tells the Ephesian church and a lot of other churches, this was a circular letter, uh, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. But how? We have to put on the full armor of God because we're going to have to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, the devil's coming after us and we're going to have to deal with him. We're struggling against the devil and not flesh and blood, but rulers and powers and world forces and spiritual forces of wickedness, all names for demons. We're battling all these demons, and in order to be able to deal with the schemes of the devil and all these demon powers, we have to put on all this armor. But the most important thing, and the final thing, comes in verse 17. Having put on the helmet of salvation, you then take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And again, the way you resist the devil is with the Word of God. That's the only weapon we really have. Added to prayer in verse 18. We come against Satan. So there is an objective defense. When Satan comes, young people, we have to know the Word of God. That's our defense. Let me tell you something. The term here for sword of the Spirit is not Ramphaya, the big long four-foot sword, but Machaira, the six to twelve inch dagger. And the word is not used indiscriminately like you flail a big sword around in space. It's used like a dagger with precision. You can own a Bible and not have the sword of the Spirit. You can own a 
warehouse full of Bibles and not have the sword of the Spirit. It's the ability to take the Scripture at its precise point of application and use it against the enemy. It's a very incisive use of Scripture. And the term Word of God is not lagos, not the general term, but frema, specific statement. So the sword of the Spirit is being able to use the specific statements of Scripture against the enemy at the specific point of attack. And if there are things in the Bible that you don't know, and there are principles of divine revelation that you don't know, and that are not part of the fabric of your life, the enemy will attack you there and you're vulnerable, right? So that's why Paul says, I have not failed to declare unto you, Acts 20, the whole counsel of God. I have to give you the sword everywhere. The reason you need to know the principles of Scripture beginning to end is so that you are able to defend yourself and resist the devil when he comes at you through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So you must know the Word. You must know the Word. There is no other sword. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And verse 18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to fight the spiritual war. How? Verse 19, keeping the faith, holding on to the revealed faith. There's a definite article used there in the Greek text. Keeping the faith. Again, the same thing. Timothy, if you are to resist the devil and war the spiritual war, it is not a question of commanding demons. It is not a question of binding demons, binding Satan, shipping them out, stomping on their neck, jumping around, doing exorcisms. It is an issue of holding on to the faith. Knowing the word well enough to defend yourself against the subtleties of the tempter. Some people, he says, haven't done that. And they've shipwrecked their faith. You must keep the faith. And then he adds, verse 19, and a good conscience. What do you mean, a clear conscience? What does that mean? A conscience that doesn't accuse you. That's a second defense against Satan. That's a pure life. That's a pure life. How do I defend Satan? I defend against Satan, number one, with the knowledge of the Word, and number two, with a clear conscience. With a conscience that doesn't accuse me. Because my life is pure. In Ephesians 6, Paul calls this the breastplate of what? Righteousness. If I'm not living a righteous life, I don't have protection. And he's going to get me. He's going to find my sin and have access to my life. How do I resist the devil? Not by a formula, not by an exorcism, but by a clear knowledge of the faith so that the, the fabric of my life is interwoven with the truth of God. Secondly, by a pure life. By a pure life. As I live a pure life, Satan has no access to me. As I give no occasion to the flesh, then I give no entrance to Satan. And so Paul says to Timothy, keep the faith and keep your conscience clear. What does that mean? You've got no accusing conscience identifying some wickedness in your life which makes you vulnerable to the enemy. Paul was obviously concerned about young Timothy, but did not simply 
identify him as the only one to have this problem. Obviously, this is something all of us can learn from. And what Paul was teaching Timothy, fortunately, God's Holy Spirit put down so that we might all learn from it as well. Now, just to kind of wrap our thoughts up, one more step. And I'm really abbreviating. There's a third dimension to this resisting that I would want to draw your attention to. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Now remember, we are to resist firm in the faith. That means the objective truth of God. But it also means a subjective trust in God. In Ephesians chapter 6, notice verse 16. He says, In addition to all these things I've already talked about, your loins girded with truth, your breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to that, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. You can deal with Satan by the shield of faith. What does he mean by that? Well, let me put it as simply as I can. Satan is shooting all his missiles at you and trying by cunning craftiness, Ephesians 4, and deceitful technique to penetrate you. And what protects you is the shield of faith. He is describing a military shield, four feet by two feet, a big, large thing, usually with thick leather soaked in oil so that fiery arrows would go into it and be extinguished by the oil. It was the kind of shield that a soldier could get behind. You could kind of crowd in behind that thing and just sit there until the guy ran out of arrows. And it would absorb them all and put them out. Now, Satan comes at you with these arrows. And what is it that diffuses them? What is it that protects you? It's your faith in God. Let me tell you why. Satan comes at you and says, do this, you'll be happy. Do this, you'll be fulfilled. Do this, it'll feel good. Do this, you deserve it. Do this, it won't matter. God will forgive you. Do this, everybody does it. And every time you sin, who have you believed? Who'd you believe? Satan. Yeah. When you got sucked into the sin, you believed the liar. In fact, you believed the liar more than you believed God, because God was saying, don't do that. That's wrong. That doesn't honor me. That won't bring you joy. That'll bring pain in your life. And so over here was the, the tempter coming to you through the system, through the world, through his demonically orchestrated system, not necessarily personally coming to you, but through the system and the network he's developed, and maybe personally sometimes, but coming to you through the system to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and saying, do it, you'll like it, do it, you'll be happy, do it, it'll feel good, do it, it doesn't matter, do it, I'll forgive you. And God is saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And every time you sin, who would you believe? You believe the devil. So what shields you from sin? Believing God. That's faith. That's the shield of faith. See it for what it is. When you sin, you've given evidence that you are more prone to believe the liar than you are the God who cannot lie. God says, don't do that, it won't bless you. Don't do that, it won't enrich your life. Don't do that, it won't make you ultimately joyful. Don't do that, it doesn't honor my name. And when you sin, you prove that you believe the devil. So what shields you from the temptation is your trust in God, your belief of God. How are you going to resist the devil, young people? 
How are you going to resist the devil and make him flee? Some kind of formula? No. You resist the devil strong in the faith. The fabric of your life is so saturated with the Word of God that the Word comes to the fore and like Jesus Christ, you defend yourself with the Word. Remember what David said? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee? Sure. That's your first line of defense. The second line of defense we slot in there is a non-accusing conscience. You don't have any sin in your life. A pure life becomes the breastplate of righteousness. The third thing I would point out to you is the matter of trusting God. How ridiculous would it be to sit back and say to yourself, well, you just can't trust God. He is just raining on everybody's parade. You know, God is the universal party pooper. There's one having fun. <laughs> Get him, you know. And God wants to make life miserable. Not so. Satan wants you to believe that lie. So what shields you from Satan is your trust in God. You can resist the devil. You can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You can put on the whole armor of God and stand against the devil. And he'll run from you. Boy, that's so important to know. It isn't what you say to the devil, and it isn't what you say to the demons. And that kind of teaching is not biblical. It's what's going on in your life. You have to resist his temptations. Dominated by the word, pure life, trusting God. And when you cultivate that in your life, you will overcome the wicked one. Just like the young men of 1 John 2. You will overcome the wicked one. Oh, you'll still battle flesh. You'll still battle your human weakness. But you'll experience the victory. Spiritual warfare, don't make more of it than it is. Don't make less of it than it is. And for your sake and God's, don't misunderstand how the battle must be fought.